choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 274 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, Minimizing Power, Part 1. A frantic scene we're seeing, a scene of deep concentration in mission control in Houston, where this abort plan to get the astronauts back alive has been conceived from well-worked-out trajectory data. Continuing from the previous episode... In room 210 of Mission Control, Bob Hesselmeyer was doing some quick calculations. Unlike Lovell, the Tiger Team Telmu had pencil, paper, strip charts, data books, power profiles, and a support team of technical personnel to help him crunch his numbers. But when he did crunch the numbers, he wasn't pleased with what they represented. Of all the consumables the crew would need for the homeward trip, it was the oxygen that caused the most obvious concern. But oxygen, it seemed, would be the least of the worries. The original flight plan had called for Lovell and Hayes to spend two days on the lunar surface, venturing out of the limb for two separate exploratory hikes. This meant completely venting and repressurizing the cabin atmosphere twice. To make this outgassing and refilling possible, Aquarius had been supplied with more O2 than any of the limbs that had been used on Apollos 9, 10, 11, or 12. Even with three men on board, the oxygen would be drawn down from the system at just a rate of 0.23 pounds per hour a consumption rate that the topped-off tanks could easily handle for more than a week. But, the elimination of the carbon dioxide would be another matter. Like the command module, the limb was equipped with cartridges of lithium hydroxide designed to trap CO2 molecules and filter them out of the air. The lunar module carried two primary cartridges that could last more than a day, and three secondary cartridges that could be snapped into place when the first two became saturated. Altogether, these five air scrubbers could work for only 53 hours with two men. With another astronaut included, the lifespan of the cartridges would fall to less than 36 hours. Odyssey's lithium hydroxide supply would remain untouched throughout the flight, or could it be cannibalized to help the limb? The problem with that idea was 
The CO2 scrubbing mechanisms of the two ships were designed differently, and the square cartridges from the command module would not fit in the receptacles of the lunar module, which were round. No matter how much oxygen the lunar module was carrying, the poisonous CO2 would soon start to crowd the life-sustaining oxygen out of the air, and the crew would asphyxiate by around 3 o'clock Wednesday afternoon. Electricity was in equally short supply. A fully functioning up-and-humming limb required about 55 amps of current to operate. To survive for up to four days instead of the planned two days, however, the spacecraft would have to lower the amp consumption to 24. Such a power down was significant, but was not impossible. Along with the onboard supply of electricity, however, was the onboard supply of water. All of the power-consuming hardware in the limb generated heat, which, if not displaced properly, could ultimately cause the equipment to burn out and shut down. A web of coolant pipes carrying a solution of water and glycol was threaded through the limb's systems. As the liquid mix rushed through the plumbing, it picked up excess heat and carried it to a sublimator. There, the water evaporated and flowed into space as steam, taking the unwanted warmth with it. The tank of pure water the lunar module carried aloft was intended to satisfy both the cooling system's requirement as well as the crew's drinking requirement. But neither one was supposed to be using the water tank for the four days this limb would be up and running. All told, the spacecraft carried about 338 pounds of water, which the equipment alone used at a rate of 6.3 pounds per hour. To survive the trip back to Earth, that rate would have to be reduced to just over three and a half pounds. To achieve that, electrical use would have to be cut even further, to barely 17 amps. Agonizing over these numbers, Hesselmeyer knew the limb was not meant to be flown like this. No one, except perhaps the folks at Grumman, even knew if the limb could be flown this way. Hesselmeyer frowned and turned to his team sitting around him. And he said, If we're going to get them home, we're going to have to figure out some other way to operate this ship. At 2.45 a.m., just as the descent engine of the lunar module was completing its burn, Grumman engineering manager Tom Kelly and Howard Wright touched down at LaGuardia Airport. They quickly made their way to Grumman's huge limb factory. During a normal lunar mission, the engineering support team that would be there to monitor the limb would only require a few people. But tonight, the scene was very different. As far as Kelly could tell, there were day shift crews, evening crews, design crews, assembly crews, and crews he wasn't even familiar with there. Even in an emergency, Grumman would not call in this many people in the middle of the night. Clearly, these were employees who had heard about the emergency in space 
and had come to the plant on their own. When Kelly entered the building, the halls were as choked as the parking lot was, and when the workers recognized the engineering manager, they waylaid him and asked what they could do to help. Kelly pushed through the group, slightly dazed, reassuring each person he passed, We'll get you busy. We'll get you all busy. We're going to need everybody's help in some way. Kelly made his way to the engineering support room, where the small crew that had been on duty when the accident happened had grown many times in size. Since the moment he and Wright met at the airport in Boston, Kelly had been guessing about the same numbers Hesselmeyer and the others in Houston had calculated. Now, however, was the first time he would have any hard data to use. Sitting down with the men at Grumman, who had been consulting with the men at Mission Control, he took his first long look at the figures. The numbers were shocking. Kelly had never tried to operate a lunar module at these kinds of power levels. He understood that if he pushed his limb too far, he was likely to lose the ship altogether. But if he didn't push it, more than likely the crew would be lost. Back on the home front, for Maryland Lovell, the night before had been a frenzied one. From the moment the Bormans, Benwares, the Conrads, the McCulloughs, and others from the NASA community arrived at the Lovell's house, parking on whatever patch of street, lawn, or sidewalk was available. The sidewalk, the driveway, and the lawn were suddenly clogged with men holding notebooks, microphones, and TV cameras. Several broadcast trucks had also converged, parking wherever they could find a space. Marilyn looked at the scene somewhat incredulously. Weren't these the same people who had been so conspicuously absent for the last two days? The same ones who didn't carry her husband's broadcast last night, who buried the news of his impending launch on the weather page, who gave more time to Dick Cavett's jokes than to Jules Bergman's reports. From the study, the temporary hotline that had been set up between her house and the space center began to ring, and Marilyn could hear a protocol man answering it. There was a minute or so of quiet conversation, and then the man, one she didn't remember meeting last night, approached her in the kitchen. Mrs. Lovell, he said uncertainly. That was the public affairs office. The networks have contacted them and want to know if it's okay with you if they put up a broadcast tower in your yard for some of the coverage they're planning. A broadcast tower on my lawn? Marilyn said. Uh, yes, they're holding on the phone and I need to let them know what to do. Marilyn thought for a moment and said, Nothing. Mrs. Lovell, I have to tell them something. No, you don't have to tell them anything, but I have to tell them plenty. Marilyn walked back to the study where the protocol man was and picked up the phone. This is Marilyn Lovell. I'm told the network people want to build some kind of tower on my front lawn. Well, yes, the voice from the public affairs officer said. Is that okay? Couldn't they have set up their tower yesterday 
or the day before if they wanted to? Well, yes, the voice answered, but that was different. How so? Well, the flight was going fine then. Now it's uh, more of a news story. If landing on the moon wasn't enough of news story for them, Marilyn said, I don't know why not landing on the moon should be. You tell the networks that they're not to put one piece of equipment on my property from now through the end of this flight, and if anyone has any problem with that, tell them they can take it up with my husband. I'm expecting him home on Friday. Marilyn Lovell hung up the phone, left the study, and walked back to the kitchen to finish her coffee. There would be no more discussions about broadcast towers for the rest of the day. Back in space, communication with the spacecraft had become very difficult. Here's an example. Okay, Aquarius Houston, we have data back and I assume we have conference. Houston, uh, copy that. It's noisy on RN2. Stand by while we think about it. Though calm seemed to get better, it would get worse a little later. Now Jim began to think about getting some sleep. The sun, that was rising across the central time zone, shone on the docked pair of Apollo 13 spacecrafts. With the engine bell of the limb pointing back toward Earth, sunlight flowed through the commander's window and the astronauts found themselves awash in daylight. But when the wobbles in the spacecraft attitude moved it a few degrees, they were plunged into darkness. These abrupt transitions from day to night did not generally bother Lovell. On the way to the moon, the passive thermal control roll that kept the spacecraft evenly heated all around caused the sun to go in and out of the limbs and the command module's portholes. After just a day or so in translunar drift, the astronauts got accustomed to the constant flickering 
and went about their sleep-wake-work-rest schedules as if the sun were rising and setting their craft just as it did outside their homes in Houston. As long as the crew maintained that schedule, NASA's flight surgeons had learned their circadian rhythms would remain largely undisturbed. By 7 o'clock on Tuesday morning, however, those cycles had been disturbed quite a bit. According to the original mission plan, the most recent sleep shift for the crew was to have begun at 10 o'clock last night and run until about an hour ago. Even on a routine flight, no one expected the pilots to sleep a full eight hours. The almost total lack of physical exertion in space and the almost constant output of adrenaline that accompanied the business of flying to the moon made five or six hours of sack time the most the medics could hope for. Those five or six hours, however, were absolutely essential if a crew that was flying even a nominal mission was going to make it through their day without making some serious and perhaps disastrous mistake. A crew that was flying a less than normal mission would need even more rest. By the time the free return burn was complete, the flight surgeons had prepared a revised work-rest schedule that the crew was to begin immediately. Hayes would get some sleep first, retreating alone in the command module from about 63 hours mission elapsed time, or 4 a.m., to about 69 hours, or 10 a.m., Recall Odyssey had no oxygen of its own to sustain even a sleeping man, but with the hatch open between the two ships, more than enough atmosphere would float up from the lunar module. While Hayes slept, Swigert and Lovell would stay on watch, using the time to power down the backup communication system and all the other hardware NASA wanted taken offline. When Hayes woke, he would eat breakfast, confer with his crewmates about any problems that had developed while he slept, and take the helm alone while Lovell and Swigert retired to the command module from 70 hours to 76 hours elapsed time. The entire crew would be back on duty by 5 p.m. in plenty of time to prep for the PC plus 2 burn at 8.40 p.m. Almost as soon as Lousma radioed up the flight surgeon's instructions, it became clear that sleeping and waking according to the medic's schedule would not be an easy matter. As Hayes floated up the tunnel and into Odyssey, he was stunned at what he found. The temperature in the lifeless ship had been an already chilly 58 degrees when the crew abandoned it, but in the few hours they had been gone, the temperature had fallen even further. When he poked his head through the top of the command module cone, he could clearly see his breath condensing in front of him. The crew's two-piece beta cloth jumpsuits were not designed for warmth in the constant 72-degree atmosphere the command module was supposed to maintain, and Hayes immediately wrapped his arms around himself and pushed off in the direction of his couch to zip himself into his sleeping bag. However, 
The thin cloth cocoons the astronauts used during sleeping periods were intended merely as restraints to prevent a weightless arm or leg from drifting up during the night and striking a switch or circuit breaker. Hayes pulled out his bag, slipped into it, and settled as deeply into his couch as he could, but even swaddled up in the extra layer of fabric he found himself lying shivering and awake, his body pressed up against the cold metal bulkhead of the spacecraft. If the dropping temperatures on Odyssey was not enough, there was also the noise. The open hatch between the two ships allowed not only the ambient atmosphere from the lunar module to flow into the command module, but also the ambient sounds. If the churning of the limb's coolant systems and the bumping of its thrusters weren't hard enough for a sleeping man to tune out, the shouted conversations of Lovell and Swigert fighting to be heard over the noisy comm channel were. Hayes, who had a reputation in the astronaut corps for his ability to sleep nearly anywhere under nearly any conditions, fought gamely to shut out the noise from the lunar module, but finally, at six in the morning, less than two hours after the, his six-hour sleep cycle began, he gave up, wiggled out of his sleeping bag, and floated down through the tunnel to the limb. That's it? Lovell asked, glancing at his watch as Hayes appeared between him and Swigert, drifting upside down through the Aquarius's roof. It's too cold up there, Hayes muttered reaching for one of the food packets Swigert had carried over earlier and tearing it open with only passing interest. Too cold and too noisy. You guys give it a try, but I wouldn't count on getting much sleep. Now, at 7 a.m., in the silence of the temporary communications blackout, Lovell closed his eyes and felt the fatigue seep in. On the ground, he knew Jerry Griffin's goal team would just be replacing Glenn Lunny's black team. The fresh controllers coming off at least a partial night's sleep, taking over the consoles from the bleary-eyed controllers coming off a full night's work. Lovell was glad a new group would be coming on, but fresh as Griffin's men might be this morning, they were going to be working with a trio of astronauts who would be sleepier and no doubt testier than any crew they had ever worked with before. Lovell told himself he would try to keep everything percolating as steadily as possible, but the ground was going to have to make some allowances. Just then, a noisy signal came from Capcom. Aquarius, Houston, how do you read us? Lovell jerked at the sound and opened his eyes. We still read you with a lot of static, he said wearily. The noise seems to indicate... I didn't copy that last remark, Jim. I said, we still have noise, Lovell said in a loud, slow voice. We do, too. Do you want us to remain in this configuration, then? Lovell asked. Stay there for the next minute or two, Jim. Then we'll evaluate it. At this point, to the surprise of no one more than Lovell, the cold and the static and the uncertain advice from Capcom got to be too much. Okay, I tell you what we need, Jack. 
As far as chewing outs go, it wasn't much, but in the uninflected atonal context of the air-to-ground loop, it was as close to a harangue as Houston was ever likely to get. Lovell looked to his crewmates who nodded at him sympathetically. Capcom looked at the men near his console who responded to him the same way. Both he and Lovell knew that getting the right procedures up to the ship was precisely what the Capcom had been trying to do, and both he and Lovell knew that the commander appreciated that. Lovell, like his own spacecraft late last night, was merely venting, something he had had good cause to do for the last ten hours. Lovell sat flatly and closed his eyes. The commander didn't say anything more to Capcom. Lovell believed the communication system would eventually clear up, but that fix, like every other fix the ground had come up with so far, was almost certain to be temporary. And who knew how many other systems were going to fail? Salutations from the Badger State. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 274 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 13, Minimizing Power, Part 1. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was kind of difficult to bring this one to you, but I enjoyed it. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, I want you to search for Space Rocket History Archive. The first 98 episodes are there for your listening pleasure. Today, we salute the Salyut Skylab level donors. There are three so far this year. Salyut Skylab donors contribute $60 or more during the calendar year. Thanks for your continued support, Salyut Skylab donors. Okay, I have a few quick comments from this week's episode. First, I want to credit my sources, Lost Moon by Jim Lovell, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Flight by Chris Craft, The Apollo 13 Flight Journal, The Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. Well, can you imagine how frustrating it would be to have all the problems of Apollo 13 and also have to deal with a communications problem. Now, the astronauts have to have the communications to prepare for the next burn and deal with all the other problems that will be coming up, such as the carbon dioxide problem. I can totally understand Jim Lovell's venting, just like his spacecraft. (laughs) It was understandable because without calm... They're not going to make it back. That's just the way it is. So calm is very important. I also thought, can you imagine Marilyn Lovell listening in to this conversation on the squawk box back in her bedroom? Now that would be upsetting as well. I don't know if she heard all of that or not, particularly since the calm was so bad it may have been difficult to realize what was going on. 
But it would have been very upsetting and frustrating, and I think she might have taken a little frustration out on the news reporters who hadn't been covering Apollo 13 until there was the problem. So it is no towers on the front lawn. (laughs) Okay, I posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. We were pleased to receive support from several donors over the past week. Andrew C. from the UK donated at the Mercury level. Marcus S. donated at the Sputnik level and earned his rocket emoji. Anthony P. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level and earned his rocket emoji. Nick increased his pledge on Patreon to the Gemini level. James S. pledged on Patreon at the Gemini level. And Nicholas S. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Our Patreon donors are at 197 with a goal of reaching 218 for 2018. And our total donors for 2018 have reached 364, with a goal of reaching 418. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated in 2018, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind, the Space Rocket History podcast is entirely listener-funded. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. For those of you who have donated already in 2018, I certainly appreciate it. This week, we are giving away the official SRH logo magnet. It is three inches in diameter, round and will stick to most refrigerators. To select the winner, Mrs. SRH gave every 2018 donor a number, then she put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number for Paul Glazer. Paul Glazer, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Okay folks, that's all I have for this week. I will try to get episode 275 out by next Thursday. So long for now.